seat down, turn around, shake hands and fellowship with one another. Be sure to welcome our visitors today.
in perfect delight. On a second now. Perfect submission. Perfect Set of ushers come forward to receive our offering this morning. And uh, you that are visiting with us, we're certainly thrilled about you being here and you received the guest packet a moment ago. If you will take the guest card in there, visitor card, fill it in, drop in the offering plate in just a moment. We would like to send you some information this week about the church and also so that you might get to know us. And we want to get to know you as well. So we appreciate all of you being with us in the service. Good to have a couple of missionary families visiting with us today in the columns. Would you stand please? They were in the auditorium class. Let's welcome them to the service. And they're going to Ireland. Good to have them. And then Terrence Jones and his wife from the Virgin Islands. Would you stand? Good to have you folks with us today. Appreciate you being in the services. 
I praise the Lord for all of his goodness. I rejoice in all the good reports that I got when I got back. And uh, I thank the Lord for his blessings and the offering. Uh, a couple weeks ago to our building fund, we were well on target uh, to getting our $100,000 for this year is out. So excited about that. And I saw our first sketch of the building this week, just a pencil sketch. And they spent a couple of days with the folks from Cogans from Charlotte, North Carolina and giving them ideals, and they wanted to learn more about what we were wanting to do and what we're wanting to build and different things. And so they just threw out a little sketch, and they'll be getting us something here within the next couple of weeks where you're going to be able to see, get an idea a little bit about what we're going to do. I was telling Rick this morning just to give you a little bit of perspective about what we're going to be building and different things. Uh, the platform on the new building is going to be about the size of this building. So that gives you an idea about how big it's going to be. So we're excited about it, looking forward to it. And I say all that because your giving is critical. Your fifth Sundays, all that goes to the building fund. But uh, even more critical is your weekly giving and being faithful in your tithe. I've said this before, but I said it again, emphasize it, I've said it many more, many more times that uh, you're giving. You shouldn't give weekly because we're building. You should give weekly because it's right to give. Amen? It's an act of obedience to the Lord. And many of you need to learn the blessing of tithing and giving to the Lord week after week after week. But uh, let me encourage you to be faithful in your giving to the Lord. It'll be a blessing to us, but much more it'll be a blessing to you. It's also good to have a former pastor from the Akron, Ohio area, him and his wife here. Would you folks stand? I don't remember your name, but back here in the back, let's welcome them to the service. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you so much. Let's pray and ask the Lord to bless the offering. Father, thank you for all you're doing. Keep on blessing. Keep on touching. We need you, and we pray, Lord, that you'll just glorify yourself in every little detail. Bless now the rest of the service in Jesus' name.
is our cornerstone. When the world that I've been living in collapses at my feet, and when life is all tattered and torn, see I've been windswept, I've been battered, but I can cling to His cross and
this room that have been given reports that seem hopeless. Our country as a whole is in turmoil right now. But the Prince of Peace, I want you to know, is in control. And he is on the scene. Leonard Graham was sharing with us this morning. A few months ago, the doctors told him he had cancer again and, and there was nothing they could do. He shared with us this morning how God had touched him once again. He got a good report this week. And you know, God is so able. He's able to do whatever you need today. I've watched him come to the bedside. I've saw him do that. And you have too. You saw him make it a cathedral of hope and love. You've seen him come and bring his peace. Maybe you need that peace this morning. He's here and he'll give it to you. In 24 short hours, years of living are brought to moments. And when life's final picture is taking form in the dark room of my suffering, there's a shining through and he gives his patience he does all in the midst of my storm and one more thing when I come to the end of my journey when all of living seems just one moment and the doctor shakes his hand
That's all it takes. Yes, that's enough for me. I know that Jesus saves me, and that's enough for me. Turn to the book of Acts, chapter 16, if you would please. The book of Acts, chapter 16. And that is all that we need. Amen. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. If you're trusting in anything else, then you're trusting in the wrong thing. You realize, of course, I preached this past Wednesday night, but it's been four Sundays since I preached. So I hope you brought your lunch. Got a lot built up, stored up in me. So what we're going to do is just make this an all-day affair. That'd be all right? Wouldn't be anything wrong with it. 
What are you going to do when you get to heaven and that's all we do for a million years is go to church? <laughs> Some of you are worried about getting out to the country place. Well, listen, uh, wait till you get to the marriage supper. You'll forget all about the steakhouses and everything else. Amen? Acts chapter 16. I want for a few Sunday mornings now to begin looking at some great questions that are found in the Bible. There are many great questions, some of them asked by individuals in the Bible, some of them asked by the Lord Himself. But I want us to begin this morning looking at some of these great questions and the first one we find in Acts 16. Would you stand as we honor the public reading of His Word? Acts 16, let's begin reading in verse 19. We'll read the context of the question and get the background and the story surrounding it. But in Acts 16, we have a familiar story and a familiar passage and a familiar question that we're going to look at this morning. Acts 16, verse 19, the Bible said, And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace under the rulers and brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. And when they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awakening out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas and brought them out and said, Sirs, now here's our question. What must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved in thy house. And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all of his, straightway. And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Now look at verse 30. Here's our question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Thank you. you may be seated. Let's pray. And then this morning we're going to look at this great question that is given to us in the Word of God. Father, this morning in Jesus' name, we thank You for the saving blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank You for the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
We thank you, Lord, for that blessed day when you brought us to that moment and brought us to the place that like this, the man in our story, we cried out, what must I do to be saved? Thank you for that. Now, Father, we ask you now that as we look at this story and this familiar story in the Bible, that you would freshly anoint it to our hearing this morning. Open our hearts and work in our hearts today from the youngest to the oldest. May no one leave this building today without having heard you and without having met you. So we yield to you this morning, unworthy as we are, but yet we yield to you through the blood of Jesus Christ and the grace of God, asking you now to fill us for Jesus' sake. We claim that power and claim that presence now for the preaching of your word, for it is in Jesus' name we pray, and for his sake we ask these things. Amen. When I think about the matter of asking questions, I am reminded this morning that when it comes to asking questions that children, kids are in a class all to themselves. Some of the questions that children ask you will amaze you. In fact, I heard about, read about one little seven-year-old girl that came home one day and said to her father, ask her father, said, Daddy, where did I come from? Well, the dad knew that the hour had come that he needed to explain some things, but it was an hour for which he had carefully prepared and planned for. So he took his little girl into the living room, got out the encyclopedia and several other books, and then proceeded into a lengthy explanation of the facts of life. Then when he got through, he looked at his little girl and said, Now, does that answer your question? She said, Not really. Marcy said she was from Detroit. I wanted to know where I was from. Amen. Well, not the answer. Maybe she was wanting. But I think about questions. I want us to look, as I said a moment ago, at some questions, some questions that are found in the Bible. I want to call them great, great questions in the Bible. And there are many of them, and I'm not sure how many we'll look at, but there are several of them that I want us to consider over the course of the next several weeks. The first one we find in Acts chapter 16 and verse 30, and it is the question, what must I do to be saved? I submit unto you this morning, that is a great question. That's a great question. When I talk about great questions in the Bible, here is one of the greatest. What must I do to be saved? I think about what Clovis Chapel had to say about that question. He said he asked the biggest question that ever fell from human lips. There can be no greater. It was the greatest for him. It was the greatest for me. It is the greatest for you. What must I do to be saved? There is no question quite so big as that. And I would agree. I'm glad that one day back in April of 1972, I asked that question. And there came that moment in my life that I said, what must I do to be saved? And thank God somebody took the Bible, the blessed Word of God, and showed me the answer to that question. And there are many of you in this room today, you've asked that question. And it is very possible that there are some that will need to ask that question before the day is out. But the question is, what must I do to be saved? Let's look at the story and that surrounds the question, the question itself. And there are three things that I want to point out this morning from the Scripture. The first thing that I want you to see in the story is the miracle that was seen. There is the miracle that was seen. For when I think about this man asking the question, what must I do to be saved? 
I am reminded in the story of how that seeking hearts are always the result of stirred hearts. And what I mean by that is that God works in the hearts of an individual to bring them to the place that they ask the question, what must I do to be saved? I am mindful today that every one of us in this room, there was a point. If you were a Christian, there was a point that you asked the question, what must I do to be saved? But I'm also mindful of the fact that preceding that was the work of God to bring you to that moment. And there was the things that God used and the methods in God's ways that He brought you to the point that you asked the question, what must I do to be saved? You see, there is the work of God to bring us to that place. We think of the Philippian jailer, as we so often call him. His identity is undisclosed. We do not know his name. We don't know anything about him except, as verse 27 said, that he was the keeper of the prison. That tells me that he was a civil servant of Rome and that he had been signed the responsibility of guarding the prison. He was a watcher over the prisoners. We would call him in this day a prison guard. And if he was like most prison guards in that day, then he was a very cold man. He was a very callous man, a very hard man. He was a very brutal man. And when you consider the way that Paul and Silas was treated, then you're led to believe that he was no different. He was a very cold man, as I said, a very callous man, a hard-hearted man. He was a man that was very hard in his heart. But yet... When you look at Acts chapter 16, you find this cold, callous, hard-hearted man falling on his knees and asking the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What is it that brought this man to that moment? What is it that broke this cold-hearted man down? And he's falling on his knees trembling, wanting to know how to be saved. How, what is it that God used to bring him to that point? Let me just point out a couple of things from the story. I think of these two things. For one thing, I think that God used the difference that He saw in the people of God. I believe it was the difference that He saw in the people of God that was one of the tools that God used to bring Him to that moment. You see, no doubt this prisoner, this guard here, this prison guard, had watched over many prisoners before. He had stood guard over the meanest of the mean, and he had stood guard over the roughest of the rough, and the hardest of the hard, and the vilest of the vile. He had seen the worst of the worst. He had stood guard over many, many prisoners in his lifetime. And he had heard their moans, and he would heard their groans, and he had heard their oaths, and he had heard the foul language that came out of their mouth with every breath they took. He had stood over again the vilest of the vile and the meanest of the mean. He had seen them all. But he saw something different in these two prisons. He saw something different in their behavior. He saw something different in the way they acted. He saw something different in the way they reacted. You see, there was something different about the two prisoners that he had in his prison this time. In fact, what he had in there was two Baptist preachers. You say, well, how do you know they were Baptists? They were in jail, weren't they? Say amen right there. May I say, the last thing you want on your hands is a bunch of Baptist preachers. I heard about this priest that went to a barber to get a haircut. And when he got through, he started to pay the barber, and the barber said, no, 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 no. I never charged the clergy for a haircut. The next day he came to his store and he found a bottle of wine and a thank you card from the priest. A couple of days later a rabbi come in to get a haircut 
And when he got ready to pay, the barber said, no, no, I never charged the clergy for a haircut. The next day, he found a beautiful basket of bread and fruit and a thank you card from the rabbi. A few days later, a Baptist preacher come in to get a haircut. And when he got ready to pay, he said, no, 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 I never charged the clergy for a haircut. The next morning when he showed up at his shop, there were 20 Baptist preachers lined up at the door there. You don't want to get a bunch of preachers on your hands. But he had these two prisoners and they were unlike any other prisoners he'd ever had. Paul and Silas, they had been arrested for preaching. God was doing a wonderful work in the, in the city of Philippi. And he'd upset many apple carts and so they were arrested. And the Bible tells us of how they were stripped of all of their clothing and then they were beat with many stripes. You can see their backs raw and you can see their backs bleeding from the beating they took. And then they were thrown into jail and their feet were placed in stocks. But these two prisoners didn't act like all the other prisoners that had come through that prison cell. They didn't act like the mean ones and the vile ones. And they didn't curse and they didn't moan and they didn't groan. Verse 25 says, And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and they sang, praises unto God and the prisoners heard them. Instead of moaning and groaning, instead of cursing and spitting out their oaths, we find that they were praying in that prison cell. Now pardon me, but I do not believe that Silas looked over at Paul and said, Paul, Brother Paul, would you please lead us in a word of prayer? And sweetly Paul closed his eyes and lifted his head toward heaven and softly raised his voice and said, Oh, thou great God Jehovah, remember us in this place of adversity today. I don't believe that's the way they prayed. In fact, the word pray, that it, word prayer that is used there is a word that means to earnestly pray. If I may put it this way, this way these boys, when they began to pray, they got down with it. They tore loose and they began to pray. They began to pray as loud as they could. They began to pray as hard as they could. The prisoners heard them praying. And not only were they praying, but the Bible tells us they were praising. These men were not pouting. These men were shouting. And they were singing praises unto God. One writer I read this week said, he believed that they were singing Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength a very present help in the time of trouble. But they were praying and they were praising God. Uh, they were so different than the other prisoners that had come through that prison cell. I believe that one of the things that God used in the heart of that Philippian jailer was what he saw in the lives of those two men. May I remind you this morning that God uses His people to bring others unto Himself. That one of the tools that God has and one of the tools that God uses to bring people to Jesus Christ is His own people. He uses our life how we live. Someone says it doesn't matter how we live. Oh yes it does. We are a billboard for Jesus Christ and the world is watching us. And God uses our life, how we live, how we act, how we react. God uses that. He uses our lips and what we say in telling the wonderful story of Jesus Christ. He uses our labor as we go out and knock on doors and tell others about Jesus Christ. You see, God uses the people of God to bring others to Jesus Christ. It is very possible that some of you in this room today, that God used someone else to bring you to Christ. And God used someone that may be a witness to you down on the job. 
or came by your home on a Tuesday night or a Thursday night or whatever it was, a Sunday school teacher, maybe a preacher, but God used somebody else to bring you to that point where you said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? God used the difference that this jailer saw in the life of the people of God. Are you with me? Say amen. There's something else in the story that I believe he used. Not only the difference that he saw in the people of God, but the demonstration he saw of the power of God. For you look at verse 26, the Bible said, And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's bands was loosed. You see, what happened in that prison was more than a natural occurrence. It was a supernatural occurrence. And people to Christ goes beyond my ability. And it goes beyond your ability. It's not natural ability that brings people to God. It's a supernatural ability. It is the mighty power of God. That's why I've always said it's so critical when we come to church on Sunday morning that we realize we're not coming to a funeral home. We're coming to a celebration that people might come and see that God is real and that the presence and the power of God is real. For the power of God can do more than five minutes that I can do in 50 years. What is it that will bring men to Christ? A mighty moving of the power of God. What I'm talking about is how God works to bring us to the Lord Jesus. You remember when you got saved? And do you remember when God began to deal with your heart and God began to bring you to a realization of your need of Jesus Christ? The methods of God vary. For someone, it might have been a preacher preaching a message. Again, it might have been a Sunday school teacher that called you. It might have been a friend that spoke to you one day. It might have been a note that you got from someone. It might have been a gospel track that you found somewhere. Somebody down the office, somebody down the factory. But God used something to bring you to that point that you said, what must I do to be saved? I think about the great American missionary Adoniram Judson, the first American missionary, the great missionary to Burma. Grew up in a godly home, but he went off to college and during his college days, he became friend with, friends with a deist by the name of Jacob Eames. And the thinking and the theories of Eames influenced Judson to the point that Justin, Judson even admitted that he was as much a free thinker and an unbeliever as Eames was. And he abandoned the faith of his fathers and grandfather and, and began to go in an unbeliever's route. But after college, Judson said he wanted to travel a little bit. So he began to travel on horseback. And there came a night that he stopped in a little country inn. He asked for a room and the man told him there was only one room left and it was next door to a man that was dying. And Judson said, that's no concern to me. That'll be fine. Let me have the room, please. But as he went into his room and tried to spend the night, uh, the sounds from the room next door were very, very disturbing. Moans and groans throughout the night. He could hear people walking back and forth in the room and hear people speaking in a low voice and then the moans and groans coming from the man that he knew was dying in the room beside him. Suddenly, Judson began to think about dying. Suddenly, Judson began to think about death. And he began to think about eternity. And he began to rebuke himself for the way that he was feeling. He began to think, what would Jacob think about the way that I'm feeling? What would Jacob say to me if I were to tell him that I'm thinking about death and I'm thinking about eternity? And he could imagine Jacob being laughing at him when he told him. 
got a very little sleep that night, and as he was leaving the next morning, he asked about the man. And the tavern man owner said, well, the man died in the early morning hours. And kind of a nonchalant way, as, as is trying to say, it didn't matter to him. Uh, Adoniram Judson said, do you know who he was? Do you know his name? The tavern owner said, oh, yes. He was a young man from Providence College, a very fine man young man. His name was Eames, Jacob Eames. And for the next hours, it kept ringing in the ears of Adoniram Judson, dead, lost, lost, lost. But God used that to bring Adoniram Judson to the point where he said, what must I do to be saved? God works to bring us to Christ. Just like he brought this Philippian jailer, there was the difference that he saw in the people of God and the demonstration that he saw the power of God that brought him to his knees, a hard, callous man. I want you to know, blessed be God, nobody's too hard for God. Amen. God knows how to bring your children and God knows how to bring your husband and God knows how to bring your loved one to the point that they'll cry out, what must I do to be saved? It is the ways of God to bring us to Jesus Christ. But look at the second thing in the story. You not only see the miracle that was seen, but also the message that was shared. Verse 27, the keeper of the prison awakening out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. You see, he had been assigned by Rome to guard the prisoners, and the penalty for allowing any prisoner to escape was the penalty or the crime or the penalty for the crime they were serving, or even death itself. So he knew that these men were doomed to die. And so he knew if he let them get out, then he would die himself. So rather than be killed, he took his own sword out to take his own life. But Paul hollers at him in verse 28 and says, Stop, do thyself no harm, for we are all here. What answer did he receive? It was at this moment, now get it, that this brutal, hard, cold, callous man fell down on his knees and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? What was the answer he received? Verse 31, And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. Look at the message that they shared. Two things about it. I see, first of all, in the message they shared, he said, I want to know how to be saved. What must I do to be saved? And the first thing they told him, talked to him about was the person of salvation. They said to him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and thy house. They pointed him to the person of salvation. I think about in preparation for a discussion, appeared on a Christian, Christian radio program. There was this interviewer that went out on the streets of Philadelphia. And he asked people the question, what is Christianity? And he got all kinds of answers. Some said Christianity was an organization. One said that Christianity was an American way of life. One even said that it was a tool used by capitalists to repress the poor. And the interviewer began to realize that people had no comprehension of what he was asking them. So he began to ask the question, who is Jesus? And he got again. Wide, uh, a wide variety of answers. One said he's the pure essence of energy. 
One said he's a good man. Another said he's our leader. And most of them replied, I don't know or I'm not sure. This man said, what must I do to be saved? If you were to ask certain ones that, you would have got a wide variety of answers. If you'd asked some, they would have said to you, when the man said, what must I do to be saved? They would have said, live the best you can. That's all God requires of you. That's all God asks of anybody. Just do the best you can. Live the best you can. And God will surely let you in. God's a good God. He's a God of love. That's all you got to do. Just live the best you can. If you'd ask somebody, that, some, someone else that question, they might have said, all you got to do is go to church. Are you a member of church? Oh, yes, I'm a member over Temple Baptist Church. Well, that's all you need. All you got to do is be a church member. All you got to do is belong to the church. Someone else might have said, well, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Obey the golden rule and God will let you in. Someone else might have said, been baptized. Or someone else may have said, do penance. If you'd asked a Muslim, he would say, sacrifice your life. You see, if you'd asked a lot of people, what, what, what do I do to be saved? You could have got a variety of answers. George Barna found in a, in a survey that most Americans believe that spiritual salvation is an outcome to be earned through their good character or their behavior. He found that 6 out of 10, 57% believe, and I quote, if a person is generally good, or does enough good things for others during their life, they will earn a place in heaven, end quote. But I want you to listen to what Paul and Silas said. This man, this old hard, callous jailer is now brought to the point that he's on his knees shaking like a leaf. And he says, tell me, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Paul and Silas told him that salvation is in a person. He told him that salvation is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ. When I was about 12 years old, I went forward in a revival meeting in the mountains of North Carolina. I went forward in that revival meeting, got on my knees, a bunch of preachers gathered around me, and they began to pray. Nobody took the Bible. Nobody took the Word of God and showed me how to be saved. I was emotional, yes, but nobody showed me what I needed to do. And when we got through praying, one of them put his arm around me and said, do you feel better? I said, yes, I do. And they all began to say, amen, glory to God, stood me up, stood me in front of the church there and told everybody that I got saved. I remember a few weeks later I was baptized and became a member of that little Baptist church there in the mountains of North Carolina. But on April the 2nd, 1972, I realized something, that my salvation doesn't consist in going into a trip to the altar, and it doesn't consist in being baptized, and it doesn't consist in being a member of a Baptist church. My salvation rests in what Jesus Christ has done for me, and I was saved when I put my faith and trust in Him. I want you to listen to me this morning. There is no other way to salvation than through Jesus Christ. And I realize this is one of the most politically incorrect things that we can say in our day and time, that Jesus Christ is the only way to heaven. And equally, it's one of the most politically incorrect things to say in our day and time, that if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Savior, and if you're not trusting in Him and Him alone, you will not go to heaven. But I want you to listen to me. The issue is not what is politically correct. The issue is what is biblically correct. And there is salvation in none other but Jesus Christ. You can't go to heaven just because you're religious. 
You can't go to heaven because you live this way or live that way. The only way you'll go to heaven is by putting your faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone. What must I do to be saved? Trust in Jesus. You say, Brother Ken, I ask you, what are you trusting in this morning? What are you trusting in? If I were to come to you today and say, what is it that you are trusting in to go to heaven? What is it that you're putting your faith in that is going to get you to heaven? And you would say to him, well, Brother Ken, I've been a Christian all of my life. No, 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 no. You say, but Brother Ken, I'm a member of the church. I've been baptized. I went to the altar. No, 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 no. That's what you're trusting in. That's not enough. What must I do to be saved? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. That was the message they shared. Are you with me now? It was the person of salvation. But look in their message. They not only shared the person of salvation, but they shared the promise of salvation. Philosophy says, think your way out. Repeal says, drink your way out. Prosperity says, spend your way out. Politics says legislate your way out. Science says invent your way out. Industry says work your way out. Communism says strike your way out. Militarism says fight your way out. But Jesus says I am the way out. And if you'll come to me, look what he said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Look at it. That was the promise. No conditions, no exceptions, just a plain naked promise that if you would believe on Jesus Christ, thou shalt be saved. I want you to look up here to me this morning. Listen to me. You may be in this building today with no hope whatsoever of going to heaven when you die. You may be here and know that you're lost. And you'd say, Brother Ken, I know that if I were to die, I'd bust hell wide open. I have no hope. On the other hand, you may be here and you're not sure. But I want to assure you of one thing. If you were to walk down here and someone took the Bible and showed you how to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, I can assure you by the authority of God's Word that God will save you by His grace and write your name in the Lamb's Book of Life and wash your sins away. It is the promise, Thou shalt be saved. No one ever came to Jesus Christ that He ever turned away. No one was ever rejected when they came to Him. Him that cometh to me, John said, I will in no wise cast out. That was the message they shared about Jesus and the assurance that He would say. But look at the third and the final thing. Look at the man himself. You see not only the miracle that was seen and the message that was shared, but look at the man that was saved. Oh, blessed day. Oh, blessed day when salvation came to our house. Amen. It was a red letter day. It was a special day. That day when salvation came to our house. Well, you look at the salvation come of the house of the Philippian jailer on that day. Look at the story. For one thing, you see the experience of salvation. Look in verse 34, and I point out one word. They told him what to do. He asked, what must I do? to be saved. And they told him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. And look in verse 34. The Bible said, And when he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them, and rejoiced, believing in God with all of his house. You know what happened? 
He put his faith just like they said. They said, believe on Jesus. He believed with all of his heart, with all of his house. And at that moment, God saved him by his marvelous grace. God made him a child of God. You remember the day when he saved you? Do you remember the day when he saved you? You remember the day when salvation came to your house? Look at verse 34. The Bible said he rejoiced. I looked up that word rejoice this week. And you know what it means? It literally means to jump for joy. I can see this old fella going from room to room, jumping up and down, shouting, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved, I'm saved. The joy of being a Christian, the experience of salvation. But look in the story, the evidence of salvation. Verse 33. He took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes and was baptized, he and all his, straightway. Salvation's a lot like the measles. You know that? If you got the measles, they're going to pop out on you. Am I not right? And if you've ever been saved, if there's ever been an hour that you believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, there is going to be the evidence of that experience in your life. This man dressed their stripes. He had helped put those stripes there just hours earlier. Now he's mending those stripes and, and dressing those stripes. He followed the Lord in believers' baptism. He made a public testimony that he had believed on Jesus Christ. There was evidence. He was a man, a cold, callous, hard-hearted, brutal, jailer. But now he's a brand new man thanks to Jesus Christ. I think about a story I read, and I give you this night close. I've never forgot it, about a poor, illiterate couple that got saved through the ministry of the Salvation Army. They were both so happy. They were so excited about being saved. In fact, the husband went to services every night. And he, he find, if they were on the street, he was, he was out there with them. They were in their meeting house. He was out there every night. He was gone, going somewhere. And he come in with a big old smile on his face. He was so happy and so excited about being saved. But one night he come in and he wasn't cheerful he'd been in previous nights. He didn't have that big smile on his face and his wife immediately detected something was wrong and she said to him, Honey, what's bothering you? And he said, Nothing. She said, No, something's bothering you. He said, Everybody down there has a nice coat with writing on it. I don't have a nice coat with writing on it. They couldn't afford to buy one. And so his wife said to him, I'll make you a coat with writing on it. She couldn't read or write. He couldn't read or write. But she said, I'll make you a coat. So she made him a coat and put some writing on it. He went to services the next night, and when he came in, he was as happy as ever. And they said to him, his wife said to him, how did everybody like your new coat? And he said, they said it was the best coat they had ever seen. You see what she had done? Because she couldn't read and write, she looked out the window and saw a sign in a store window across the street. And so what she did is she copied the letters she saw on that sign and made letters and sewed them on her husband's coat. And what she had put on her husband's coat, husband's coat was these words, under new management. <laughs> I'm glad, thank God. I'm under new management. I was lost and on my way to hell. But one day the Holy Ghost brought me to that moment that I said, what must I do to be saved? 
faith in Jesus Christ and he made me a new creature. Blessed be his name. Let's stand our feet, please. What must I do to be saved?